the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, obsessive-compulsive, on the run from 8 million angry gods, wonders whether or not she turned off the oven. Pittsburgh, abducted by elves. Also, burdens of the dead, cobra slaves, and a slaughter of mass-market paperbacks. Wait, is that not the right collective noun? Plus, part 11 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with Wynne Spencer, author of new hardcover Eight Million Gods and a new mass market paperback Elf Home. But first, Bain associate editor Laura Haywood Corey and Bain editorial assistant David F. Sherarad join me for the news. The June hardcovers are about to be in bookstores, Laura and David. We've got some great stuff coming out. First of all, there is Burdens of the Dead by Eric Flint, Mercedes Lackey, and Dave Freer. This is the third book in the Heirs of Alexandria series, and it's set in Renaissance Italy, where magic works and a bunch of gods are still around causing trouble. This is the sequel to Much Fall of Blood. And also on the Bane.com main webpage, we have a free short story by Dave Freer that's set in that Burdens of the Dead world. Oh yeah, that is the one that's about the lost art of assassination. Very cool story. Also out is Eight Million Gods, a very cool contemporary fantasy by Wynne Spencer. Also with a bunch of gods in it, by the way. These are Shinto deities, though, from Japan. Uh, we'll talk with Wen about that one in a moment. And we actually and... have two free short stories on Bane.com. The other is a whole novella. It's about a quarter the length of a novel, and that one's set in Wen Spencer's Elf Home World. That was one you worked on quite a bit, wasn't it, Laura? Yes, I did. It was some extensive work to get that one ready for the website. Putting in changes. Yes. What do we call Do we have a technical term for that? Putting in changes. Aha, there we go. A new publishing word for you. Uh, what is that one called, by the way? That one's called Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden, and I think fans of Larry Correa, John Ringo, will get a big kick out of it. It's not your average lawn and garden show. Now, new in trade paperback is Cobra Slave by Timothy Zahn. This is a new sort of subseries that Timothy is starting in the long-running Cobra series. This trilogy of novels will be called Cobra Rebellion. And, very exciting, Timothy Zahn will be on the next podcast to talk to us about this. Finally, also in trade paperback form, we have the Man Kazin Wars 25th Anniversary Edition, Bane's long-running series created by Larry Niven, of course. Yes, these have an all-new introduction by Steve Hickman, who's the artist who's been doing all the covers for that series. Very cool. It's a written introduction, not a drawn one, right? Right. Ah. He talks about... Uh, it, how he's put the covers together over the years and such. Yes, and how it doesn't seem like it's been uh, all that many years. Well, he does very good Kazen. All right, we've also got, uh, I think, what, three new mass markets this month? Yep. Three? What's the collective noun for mass market paperbacks, Laura, David? I guess maybe library of mass market. No, nah, that doesn't sound right. No, I'm not sure. Murder. Murder of mysteries. A star kingdom of science fiction. A quest of fantasies. 
about a mope of young adult novels? Uh, like a pulp of paperbacks, I think. Uh, I think that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yep, I think we got it. So, what are these mass market paperbacks for June, Laura? Well, our lead mass market paperback for June is War Mate's Choice by David Weber, continuing in his Bazell saga, Elf Home by Wynn Spencer, and Ride the Star Winds by A. Bertram Chandler. Uh, excellent. So that's what we have for you in June. All of these are available at your favorite bookseller, be they virtual, bricks and mortar, or a little bit of both. Find out more at Bain.com and check out those free short stories while you're at it. Joining me today is Bain editor Laura Haywood Corey, and we want to welcome Wynn Spencer to the podcast from Hawaii, a place so glorious it is always earlier in the day there. Is that true? Hi, Wynn. Hi, Wynn. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I'm six hours behind the East Coast, and it's almost always sunny and almost always in the 80s. Um, it's kind of freaky that way. Um, it's like I'm stuck on the same day over and over again, year in, year out. Wynn Spencer is the creator of the Elf Home series, which includes Tinker, Wolf Who Rules, and the latest entry, Elf Home. She's the author of science fiction novel Endless Blue. Tinker, the first novel in the Elf Home series, garnered a Joseph W. Campbell Award for Wynn and a Sapphire Award for Best Science Fiction uh, Romance. I think that's what the Sapphire is for. And she's the author of contemporary fantasy novel Eight Million Gods, a novel about an American romantic thriller writer, I guess you would characterize Nikki, living in Japan, who begins to see various supernatural beings from the Japanese uh, belief system. Elf Home is currently out in mass market, paperback in May, and Eight Million Gods is out as a hardcover in June. When you live for years on the East Coast, particularly in Pittsburgh, the Elf Home series is so completely set in Pittsburgh that you've actually taken the whole city of Pittsburgh and plopped it into sort of a magical singularity or something like that. Most people will look at Pittsburgh and think maybe old Rust Belt town, maybe it's climbing out of uh, it's climbing out of ruin, something like that. But you looked at it and you thought elves. How was that? How did you conceive of the series? How did it come to you? Well, I tend to write novels by the seat of the pants. Um, basically, just let an idea. Uh, go wherever it will until it kind of runs out, and then I have to sit there and look at what I have and go, okay, let's make sense out of this. And what I wanted to write was a novel about a human being um, swept up into a war between two mythologies, um, the elves, and then I decided the Japanese myths because I knew that very well. Um, but I wanted to bring to it, you know, the human curiosity in science, basically the the human reaction to the unknown. You know, take it apart, look at it, see how it works. Um, so I sat down to write the first scene, and that basically formed that first scene, which is the human mad scientist, which is Tinker, an elf, which is with Windwolf, and a monster from the Japanese myth, which was the Foo Dogs. Well, you know, I, when I got to the what happens next, um, I, I had gotten to the, okay, I needed to heal the elf. Who would know how to apply medicine to an elf? And the human science idea continued with xenobiologists living in a science commune, and uh, that triggered the idea of having Lane living at the Allegheny Observatory, which I used to live next to, and I knew it very well. So 
kind of becomes the write what you know and it's a it's a beautiful park with this amazing windy road through all this lush green with these victorian mansions that were it was a very rich neighborhood at one time it's now not so great but it still has the big beautiful mansions and it just seems so beautiful place to just take this whole idea and continue and once I had the park, of course, the rest of Pittsburgh kind of followed. I remember when uh, when Tinker first came out, and I was that was when I was just writing advertising copy for Bain. And you know, I read all the books, and Tinker came in, and I was I, I often have a jaded attitude, or did at the in the old days. Of course, now I don't. Uh, <laughs> toward toward having to read all the books that came in, and I sat down with that thing, and I was like, "Wow, this is pretty good." And then I was like, "Whoa." I'm Thank really you. enjoying this book, and I just I just think it's a wonderful little classic uh, gem of a of a novel, and I recommend everyone to go and and start that series and read it all the way through. I have a lot of fun writing it. Is Tinker particularly uh, come from anything, or is she just a, a, a creation whole cloth from your imagination? Um, yeah, she's basically whole cloth from imagination. I don't know anybody that is like her. She's a genius, right? And yet she's very wily and at the same time naive at the same moment. Basically, what with Tinker, what I was trying to get to is that period of time in your life that when you're young, you think you know everything. And it's even worse when you're smart and you grow up in a small town, kind of like me. And I guess that's maybe the very, very, very core Tinker was how I felt when I was a teenager, because I thought I had it all figured out. And then you move out of your comfort zone or pushed out of your comfort zone with new experiences, new places, new people, and you start to learn, no, you don't know everything. Uh, There's a whole lot that you didn't know, and life will surprise you. And I find that since I keep on moving, (laughs) I, I get to experience this over and over again so it really helps me keep tinker fresh there's nothing like you think you got this this whole being adult and having everything figured out and then moving to a new town and you have something like geckos running around your house well tell it when tell us about the uh, where you live and how you live now and how it's different from uh, from where you used to live and how you used to live well i started out in pittsburgh and then we moved to boston and we lived basically suburbs. We tend to live where, in among other people that were very much like us. And there was winter and there was fall and there was spring and then Hawaii came into the mix. Actually, we were watching Hawaii 5.0 premiere and my husband turned to me and said, do you want to move to Hawaii? I'm like, no, we've never <laughs> been there. It might be. Yes or no? Do you want to move to Hawaii? I was like, yes. <laughs> figured I could back out later if I didn't like it, but I love it. So we moved to Hawaii. It's amazing in that it seems like almost a different world. There's none of this, the day, length of day changes. It's always the sun comes up around 5 o'clock and it goes down around 6. It's always 80. There's none of this, it gets hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's always 80. Now, can you see volcanoes where you live? Yes, there's a, the world's most active volcano is 20 miles away, and if you 
stand on the hill beside the house, you can see the plume of smoke going up in the distance. Uh, we drive up to it every now and then. Um, you can drive right up to the edge of the caldera, and um, at night you can see the lava glowing down in the pit. Uh, the caldera is massive. It's like 10 miles across, um, or at least that's what it feels like. And the lava pit is two or three miles away from where you're standing, um, so you don't actually see the lava itself, except at night the glow is coming off. And there's a big plume of smoke coming off. There's areas that you can get to where the lava is actually still wiping out houses. And then going into the ocean, you can take a boat around and see the lava coming down out of the ocean. So, yeah. And well, we your house is not in danger, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, when we moved into the area... We had a whole bunch of criteria. Number one was high-speed Internet. And then number two was that we were in the lava flow. And three, that we were above tsunami range. And then after that, <laughs> everything else was negotiable. That's like, yeah, it would be good if it had electricity. And, you know, running water would be good. But, you know, <laughs> had to have um, Internet, needed to be out of the lava, couldn't be within range of a tsunami. That sounds like a very dynamic environment. I I love the way Pittsburgh is, is such a background of the Tinker series. I'm wondering if you're going to have any ideas for working your current home into any future novels. I would love to, but so far I don't feel like I know it well enough to do it justice. It is just so different and so amazing. Just flabbergasting sometimes. When we go to out of the house and around the corner on the road as you come around the road you see the ocean and the ocean basically goes as far as you can see on the left to the far as you can see on the right and the you know drops you off the face of the planet going straight ahead and we always get that shock of oh my god we live on an island <laughs> By the way, we've been joined by Hank Davis, who is the uh, editor emeritus here at Bain. He sat down with us just now. Well, let's uh, all right. Well, let's turn uh, to your latest novel, which is the I guess you would call it an urban fantasy, Eight Million Gods. This book takes place mostly in modern day Japan, but involves uh, I think they're Shinto deities at war, and human murderers and lots of supernatural and natural interaction. Maybe a lot like. Uh, elf home actually what kind of background research did you do to create this wonderful setting this is a very much the japanese mythos is it not well part of this stems from the fact that i've been into anime and manga for almost 30 years uh, i have a dvd collection of over a thousand titles and i read basically all the manga and that's ever come out of Japan sometimes it feels like. Uh, of course now it's gotten very, um, so much of it is coming out that you can't keep up with it. Um, when I started you basically could find bootleg videotapes at conventions and then we moved to the untranslated laser discs and you would watch them and try to guess what was going on. Um, and then we were so happy and thankful that they came out with the subtitled and dubbed DVDs. One of the things I 
I've read for years is a blog by an expat who runs a company called jlist.com. And three times a week he sends out a, a little newsletter and it talks about what it's like to live in Japan. And it has given me a lot of information that normally you wouldn't find in a book. I read a lot about the Japanese myths and mythologies, but it's kind of like what was going on in the country, you know, a thousand years ago. And this blog, of course, is more of how the, the country is now. And then when we had the chance to move anywhere in the world, we decided to give Japan a trial run. And so we spent six weeks in Osaka, and we really loved it. But uh, in the end, the language barrier was too great. To be a tourist in Japan is really easy because everything um, has English subtitles kind of things, the ticket booths and such you can get by with not knowing a word of Japanese, and most Japanese know how to converse in English not very well, but enough to get by for tourist kind of things. But when you start into doing daily life things, like we we had a piece of furniture in, in the apartment we were renting break, and it was broken in just that one of the screws had snapped. And we were like, instead of having to pay a fee to fix it. Let's just go out and get a screw and a screwdriver and put a new screw in. We couldn't find a hardware store for the longest time and we managed to find a place that sold tools and it took us like an hour and a half to find, get them to understand what we wanted to get them to show us where the screwdrivers were. These screws was almost impossible to find. It, it took us two days to do such a simple task that we're like, no, this isn't going to work out. So um, we went back to, okay, where do we want to live? And Hawaii became the answer. One of the uh, one of the interesting and really cool details in Eight Million Gods was the way that the Japanese, um, because the the story takes place, although it's got these deities running around, it's a contemporary Japan where it takes place. And Nikki, our heroine, is living in a in a rented apartment there. And the way that they number the apartments there plays into the story. And I was wondering, um, could you explain that a bit more? Because it was it was just oddly fascinating to me the fact that they they're not numbered sequentially by where they are on a in an area, but by when they went up or or something like that. Yeah. Well, um, it basically started out with when you. Um, when the, the Japanese started sectioning up the land, um, they basically would come up with the neighborhoods would be numbered. And the neighborhoods were numbered by order of when they were established. So there would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And, of course, when they were established, they weren't established in any order of, you know, on a grid map. It was just somebody moved over here and started the neighborhood, and so that became neighborhood number five, um, and they don't name their streets, which I find really odd, but that's the way it is. Um, they break it down to grids again by what area is settled, and then for houses, they don't go down the, the, the street going one, two, three, four, five, six. 
they go down the street by when the house was built. So the first house on the block is one. And if the second house was way down on the other side because they didn't want to move in next to the house that was there, that's two, but it's way on the other side of the street. And three might be in the middle. And four was built by the in-laws, number one, so they're right next to one. So it now goes one, four, three, two. And then they keep on filling in. Yeah, so you can you can um, know somebody's address but not be able to find their their house without careful searching. Such a odd system that what they do is everything has maps. So when you see an ad for like a restaurant, it will have a map to the restaurant and actually even the housewives will have business cards that they can hand people going, "This is where I live. This is how you get to my house." So if you want to come visit, you know, you follow these directions or, you know, if you're going to deliver something to my house, you follow these directions. But it also makes it hard when you're in a taxi cab um, and you're trying to tell somebody, the taxi driver, I'm trying to get to this place and you don't speak Japanese. That's the one thing that ends up being hard because I one time got lost while I was out walking and I saw a taxi cab and I was like, great. I'll just get in and go. And I got in the thing, and I said, this is the name of my hotel, and I'm in Otome. And he's like, "What's? where is it? <laughs> Here's the so address. I, it's right here. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a business card in my purse, and for some reason, oh, I'd gotten soaked. I'd taken it out to dry it out, but I hadn't put it back in my purse. And it's like, Oh, no, I don't have the hotel's business card. Uh, he had to actually call somebody, and they chased down the information for him, and it somehow directed him to it. It really felt like contemporary Japan. I mean, not, I haven't been there, but I certainly got a feeling that um, that this was a milieu that you knew. The entire ethos mm-hmm. of these Shinto gods or spirits is wonderfully worked out in 8 million gods. The objects the deities can inhabit and how they can and cannot possess humans in certain cir- circumstances. Um, all the magical rules, in other words. Now, did you, you say you write by the seat of your pants kind of writer. Um, did you work out the magic boundaries and rules as you were going, or did, it, did you find them in your research? Because it really well, fits together and feels organic in the book. Well, some of it is the mythos itself. They very much have the idea that the gods can inhabit things. Part of their rituals, um, like the shrine maidens, they do dances, and the idea of the dance is a a trance dance that invites the god to come into them, and then they can then do things with the power of the god. If you've ever been in the Chinese restaurants and you see the little cat with the, the paw going, that's a statue that's what it's supposed to do is lure in and kind of trap um, any pro, um, any god that is lucky and um, brings richness to the family. So it's basically set out there as kind of a little bit of a, a house or a trap, or, depending on your point of view. And um, they have a lot of mythos of the, the gods possessing people, and it's not a good thing so that they have to then drive out because they also have the poverty gods and the bad luck gods so they have rituals to do that and i basically took that idea and just extended it more 
taking it more to a logical end to make it work, to give limits within the story of, you know, this is why we drive the people. Um, the gods out is because this is a bad thing. It will kill the person eventually. And this is why we have the dance because most people can't just take in a god. And, and this is why Nikki can be taken over. And that was a little bit of seat of the pants kind of stuff. So it, it was a combination of both. Speaking of Nikki being taken over and her talent, there's a cool sort of fourth wall breaking element to the book. Nikki writes things down. Um, she has hypergraphia, uh-huh. right, where she uh, uh-huh. compulsively writes things down. Uh, and she is a writer also. And they, ha- they happened or have happened. So she's able to, for instance, write a scene with a character in which uh, the character gives out a cell phone number to somebody else in the scene. And then she knows that number and she can call the dude who turns out to uh-huh. be uh, a major character in the book. Yet I felt that this played into the overall story. A lot of these sort of meta postmodernist sort of methods sometimes destroy stories for me, but you didn't do it that way. You you had it be mm-hmm. part of the tale and they were marvelously well mm-hmm. done. And I thought they were pretty humorous when, you know, Thank when you. she knew things that way. Did you put any constraints on what um, you would do with this sort of fourth wall breaking when you realized that you were writing, you were a writer writing about a writer who's writing about writing in the book? <laughs> I think I've got all those writings, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I luckily had had a conversation with my agent about this project before I actually got very far into it. And when we were talking about it, he warned me about the fact that anytime you have a writer as a main character, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the conversation completely, any reference to the book that the character is writing serves as this big hammer to hit the reader going, this is all made up. So he really urged me to be careful with what I was doing. So I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that it didn't work to throw the reader out. Like one of the, Before we had this conversation, one of the things I had been doing was um, I had been doing Nikki's sections in first person and then what she was writing in third person. And I realized, oh, no, no, this this drew too much attention to the fact that it was a book Mm -hmm. and that I was writing it. And it's one of the things you don't want to do as a writer is for the reader to think about the author. They can think about the characters, but if they ever get to the point where they're thinking about the author, you've done something drastically wrong. So um, I, I made sure that I limited how much of Nikki's writing I put in, and then I tried very hard that the information had to be uh, stuff that Nikki couldn't get any other way. And then most importantly, that it always brought a sense of, oh my God, to the story when you learn what was in this other, in the scene. So it was tricky. There's a lot of sections that didn't actually make the book because I didn't, I felt like no, I'm just writing it because it's fun to write. Well, the book really reads like you're reading yeah. Nikki's book, which is which is a hard mm-hmm. thing to pull off, and you make it really feel easy. How how do you describe the book, Eight Million Gods, so that we can give uh, listeners a, a sort of encapsulated feel for what they they'll be getting into when they uh, when they delve into this? <laughs> this is actually the hardest thing for writers. 
Um, well, remember, I had to sit down and write the ad copy for it and figure out how in 100 words. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's a contemporary fantasy, heavily influenced by manga and anime, about a young woman who goes to Japan and is running away from problems too massive for her to actually take on by herself. And she has a network of friends. And she succeeds in, for a while, but um, it was only a matter of time before all the insanity that she was running from would catch up to her. And uh, she so, runs straight into a bunch of gods who help her deal with it, and there's lots of action, and yeah. and uh, there's some murders, <laughs> and real murders, too. They're not just, they're, or they might be. Yeah. We find out whether they are or not, and... And she is in danger. Yes. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. The books are Hardcover, Eight Million Gods, just out, and Elf Home, which is in, out, just out in paperback by Wynne Spencer. Both are available at your favorite bookseller now. Uh, I really love this Tom Kidd manga-evoking cover for Eight Million Gods, by the way. That's super cool. Now, we have some exactly. Japanese uh, Japanese characters on the front of the cover that say something. Yes. And I remember going through... Uh, um trying to get those things correctly translated. What does it say? Yes, um, um, the first, the bigger kanji says 8 million gods, and the smaller kanji says, please buy this book. <laughs> Excellent. 8 million gods, um, please buy this book, because it's really good. Thanks so much for being with us, Wen. Appreciate it. From okay, And watch you. out for the tsunamis. I had a great time talking. <laughs> We've had like three warnings since I got here, so it, it happens a lot more than I expected it to. And now we continue with our most momentous audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, the systems of the huge and loosely organized Talbot Quadrant are now allied with Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore, but trouble is brewing on the border between the Talbot Quadrant and the ancient crumbling Solarian League. As the autocratic rule of the Sollies crumbles, planetary rebels on the frontier of empire try to break the Solly hold on their systems. Some of these rebels are receiving aid from a mysterious stranger who claims to work for Manticore. The problem is, that stranger actually works for the Mason Alignment, a secret organization that would like nothing more than to see the Solarian League and the Star Kingdom at one another's throats. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Henke, Countess Goldpeak, who is in command of Royal Manticore Naval Forces in the Talbot Quadrant, sympathizes with the rebels, and she wants to help, but Goldpeak knows that you don't poke the Empire without it poking back. She also is firmly convinced of the existence of the Mason Alignment, a conviction some of her colleagues in the Quadrant don't share. But now, Solly's ships have begun to impound Star Kingdom merchant vessels, and Goldpeak sees her chance to push back at the Sollies in a way that might actually be effective. Here is Part 11 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 8 
You know, Michelle Hankey said thoughtfully, tipped back in her chair with her feet propped somewhat inelegantly on the coffee table. These sollies are beginning to severely piss me off. No, really, Captain Cynthia Lecter raised her eyebrows. I find that difficult to believe, ma'am. Michelle chuckled, although the sound was a bit sour, then glanced up as Chris Billingsley appeared with Lecter's whiskey glass and Michelle's own bottle of beer. Over the years, she'd developed a pronounced preference for Honor Harrington's favorite old Tillman. In fact, her friend had actually converted her to the barbarism of drinking it chilled, and she smiled as she accepted the cold bottle from her steward, then made a face as Dicey hopped up into her lap. The cat landed with a pronounced thump, butted her chest twice with his broad, scarred head, then settled down possessively with a deep, rumbling purr. This monster is your cat, isn't it, Chris? She demanded. Yes, ma'am, Billingsley acknowledged imperturbably. I just wondered, she said, rubbing Dicey between the ears in token of abject surrender. Thanks for clearing that up. You're welcome, ma'am. Billingsley smiled benignly and withdrew, and Michelle shook her head and returned her attention to Kumalo. As I was saying, these sollies are beginning to get on my nerves, and I wish to hell I understood what Duenas thinks he's going to accomplish with this. Assuming our information about what he's supposed to have done is correct, of course, ma'am, Lecter pointed out. I realize we have to keep our minds open to all possibilities, Cynthia, but say that again with a straight face. Michelle challenged. Just what mistake have the Sollies passed up making that would encourage that sort of optimism? I can't think of one right offhand, Lecter acknowledged. But that's not to say they couldn't have avoided at least one somewhere without our noticing. Maybe so, but I'm not inclined to believe it was in Saltash. Michelle's tone was darker, her expression less amused and her chief of staff nodded in less than delighted agreement. Michelle nodded back and sipped beer, continuing to rub Dicey's head as she contemplated the latest unpleasant decision to land on her desk. I suppose we're lucky Lorsher was on his way to Montana anyway and decided to share the news with us, she thought. Michelle and her detachment of 10th Fleet had arrived in Montana less than three days ago, and she was still in the process of settling down to her new duty station. She'd visited Montana before, on her initial thring through the Talbot Quadrant back before everything had gone to hell in a handbasket, but it had been a brief visit, little more than a quick look in. This time, unless, or rather, until something else went wrong, she'd be here for a while, and she'd plunged into a round of courtesy calls with the local system government and the local business sector. Along the way, she'd met, briefly, the infamous Stephen Westman, Abbreviated although their meeting had been, she'd recognized a kindred soul in Westman. They were both the sort of people who had a tendency to demolish obstacles with the handiest blunt instrument. Stubborn, too, the both of them. She was also getting a better feel for the system's economy, and she'd begun to understand why Montana had been one of the more affluent of the old Talbot sector star systems. Montana beef was among the best Michelle had ever tasted— and the system's location put it within a couple of hundred light years of over a dozen other star systems. For that matter, it was only 210 light years from the Mesa Terminus, which had given it direct access to the heart of the Solarian League 
and the core world spoiled wealthy gourmands even before the Lynx Terminus's discovery. Two light centuries wasn't all that far for the fast freighters which served the meatpacking trade, and Montana shipped literally millions of tons of beef a month, none of which even considered the rancher's ability to penetrate new markets now that Lynx had been discovered, always assuming the entire explored galaxy didn't decide to blow itself straight to hell, of course. What mattered at the moment, however, was that it was Montana's beef production which had brought Captain Lehau Lorscher of the Andermani freighter Angelica Tournich to the star system. He hadn't expected to see a full squadron of Manticoran ships of the wall, not to mention battlecruisers, sealacks, cruisers, destroyers, and supply ships waiting for him here, but he'd grabbed the opportunity with both hands. You know, ma'am, Lecter said after a moment, it could all be misinformation. I thought about that, Michelle acknowledged, sipping more beer, but then she shrugged. Lorsher seems to be exactly who he says he is, though, and he's got a half-dozen regular suppliers here in Montana who are prepared to vouch for him. She shook her head. Someone who's been on the same run for over ten T years isn't likely to be a plant, and he's got a wife and family back in the Empire. It's not as if he could just disappear afterward if he'd decided to sell us a bill of goods. Besides, I don't think Emperor Gustav would be especially happy with him if it turned out he was deliberately passing us false information. It might land not only us, but the Andermani in the middle of a fresh, manipulated incident with the Sollies, and I sort of doubt Gustav's going to be real eager about joining an anti-league crusade, even if he is currently our ally against Haven. For that matter, there's the question of who'd want to misinform us about something like this. I agree healthy suspicion is indicated, especially given everything that's already gone down out here, but still. She shrugged again, and her chief of staff nodded slowly. Lecter's expression remained troubled, though, and her eyes were thoughtful as she took a sip of whiskey. I agree Lorsher's probably exactly who he says he is, ma'am, and I'll agree that I wouldn't want to be the Andermani merchant skipper who pissed off the emperor by lying to his allies. That doesn't automatically mean he isn't, though. And what sticks in my mind is that if manpower or Mesa really has been manipulating things out this way, feeding us something that would draw us into a potential, another potential incident with the Sollies might suit their playbook just fine. The thought had crossed my own mind. Michelle agreed. Well, if that's what this is then Lorsher very probably could be telling us the truth, insofar as he knows it, that is. He could have been lied to and sent out to lie to us, though. For that matter, if the Saltash system governors in Mesa's pocket like Verrocchio, or even like New Tuscany was when you come down to it, Lorsher could be telling us the truth about what actually happened, and it could still be a trap designed to draw us into yet another confrontation with the League. Agreed. Michelle nodded more grimly, but her tone was firm. It was one of Lecter's functions to look for the hidden hook inside any potential bait that came Tenth Fleet's way. And God knew there had been enough skullduggery over the last several months to turn anyone paranoid. In fact, the truth was that, despite her own comment to Lecter, she could readily see how whoever was manipulating the situation might relish the possibility of piling another incident with the Solarian League onto the fire. Unfortunately... 
I think we have to assume Lorsher's telling the truth, she said. And one of the reasons I'm inclined to think this isn't deliberate misinformation on anyone's part is that Montana's where Lorsher was headed all along, but no one could have known we'd be here when he got here. He'd probably have passed the information along anyway, but it would have taken two weeks for a dispatch boat to get word back to Spindle, even if Montana had one ready to go on zero notice. If they wanted to draw us into doing something unfortunate, I think they would have sent their messenger directly to either Spindle or Lynx, where they could have been sure of finding the Navy waiting for them and drawing a quicker response. There is that, ma'am, Lecter acknowledged. And frankly, the bottom line is that it doesn't matter whether or not this is a setup, Michelle said in a harsher tone. Either Duenas really has started impounding our merchies, or he hasn't. Whoever we send is going to have to mind his feet and be sure he doesn't step on any tender, solly sensibilities if this is some sort of misinformation. But if it's not, if Duenas has done what Lorsher says he has, then I really don't care who put him up to it. Lecter's eyes widened in alarm and Michelle chuckled coldly. I'm not going all berserk on you, Cynthia, she said. But the bottom line is that one of our primary missions ever since there's been a Navy has always been the protection of manticore in commerce. Nothing in any orders I've seen has changed that. And they haven't put any limitations on who we're supposed to protect our commerce and our merchant spacers from, either. I don't know if this was Duaneus's own brainstorm or if someone put him up to it, and it doesn't matter when you come down to it. Maybe it is an effort to create a deliberate provocation, but even if it is, it's one we can't ignore or back away from. And to be perfectly honest, I don't want to either. She showed her teeth. In fact, that's one of the main reasons I haven't already jumped on it. I wanted to make sure I had myself on a short enough leash to give some thought to it first. I've known you a while, ma'am, Lecter observed. And if you'll pardon my saying so, it sounds to me like you've done most of the thinking you intend to do. Yep. Michelle gave Dicey's head another rub and nodded her own. I think this should be right up Zavala's alley. And a destroyer squadron, especially one that's a little under strength, will be a lot less threatening than a division of battlecruisers. Do you think five tin cans will be enough to convince a Soli system governor to back down? When they're bigger than most Soli light cruisers, I think the odds are probably pretty damned good, Michelle said. And I'd prefer to tailor our response to the nature of the mission. I don't want to use any bigger club than we have to, which is one reason I'm thinking Zavala would be a good choice. He won't take any crap, but he's not going to come in throwing around threats until he's at least tried to get them to see reason— and to be honest, I can't really afford to start slicing off detachments of cruisers or battle cruisers, not when the whole notion is to maintain a concentrated force here in Montana. And not when I don't know when the next Lorsher's likely to turn up with somewhere else I need to send a detachment, she added silently. I follow your logic, ma'am, Lecter said, which wasn't precisely the same thing as saying she agreed with it, Michelle noted. Should I assume you want to speak to Zavala personally before we send him off? I definitely do. Michelle nodded firmly. This isn't something you send someone off to do without making damn sure she understands her orders and that those orders are going to cover her backside if it all goes south on her. Understood, ma'am, 
Lecter replied. Although the chief of staff could think of quite a few flag officers she'd known who would have been more concerned with covering their own backsides than that of the officer they'd designated to carry out a mission like this one. Good. Michelle took a final pull at her beer, then leaned forward and set the empty bottle on the coffee table. Dicey gave her a disgusted look as her lap moved under him, then relented and gave her a parting headbutt of affection before he hopped down. She smiled as the cat meandered out, then looked back at Lecter. I'd like to have him underway within the next twelve hours. I'll see to it, ma'am. The chief of staff tossed back the last of her whiskey and set the glass beside Michelle's bottle. Then she rose, nodded respectfully to Michelle, and headed for the day cabin's door. Michelle watched her go, then she climbed out of her own chair and keyed the hollow display above her desk, frowning at the steadily blinking icon of the star called Saltash. I sure as hell hope it isn't some kind of setup, Cynthia, she thought after her vanished chief of staff. I talk a good stiff upper lip and all that, but I really, really don't want to step into it all over again with the damned sollies. It was like picking her way without a map through a waist-deep swamp she knew was filled with patches of quicksand and poorly fed alligators. There was so damned much treachery, so many cross-currents of deception, so much Solarian arrogance and resentment, and so many things which could go disastrously wrong. The temptation was to ford up, go strictly onto the defensive, to avoid the kind of mistakes which could only make the situation worse— but as she told Lecter, that wasn't an option in this case. If Lorsher was right about what was going on in Saltash, Michelle had to act. And I hope to hell this doesn't go as badly for Zavala's squadron as things went for it in New Tuscany, too, she thought. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 11, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, David F. Sherarad, Hank Davis, and composer of toe-tapping March to the Stars podcast theme, Ruth Judkowitz. Flashing samurai swords raised in thanks to 8 Million Gods and Elf Home author Wen Spencer. Please join us next time here at the pumping, pounding, table-thumping, yahoo-yelping heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 